Hey, well, good evening, everybody. Good to be back. Um, so we are going to wrap up our study on the Old Testament tonight. Um, we'll be jumping in the next couple weeks um, doing the New Testament. So um, last week, Pastor Mark was up here and um, took you through really the, the main thrust of last week was really understanding the historical um, context, the timeline of the Old Testament, the various eras that were going on, because we're talking about a really long period of history and a lot of different things that are happening in that history. So knowing and understanding the historical context of Scripture um, is really huge in, its, uh, in knowing how to interpret and then rightly apply um, the Scripture. So um, what I want us to do now, if you have your Bible, I want you to please um, open up to 2 Timothy and you're saying, Ryan, that's not in the Old Testament. I know, but we will get there. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I think it's going to be on the screen as well. It says this. It says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned, and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good Work. Now, we, uh, we, we look long and hard at um, the, really the last couple of verses of that section, right? Verses 16 and 17, the ones that are, that are up there. All, all Scripture is breathed out by God and it's good for these four things, right? Uh, but really, how often have we backed up? Because we're talking about context a lot, right? How often have we backed up those, those verses prior to that and really found out what in the world Paul was really talking about in general uh, with that? So, so we see that the, the sacred writings that he refers to. Now, what is Paul talking about with the sacred writings at this point in history? What, what sacred writings is he talking about, do you think? The Old Testament, right. So uh, the sacred writings, we, we find out three things that happened um, in, with these sacred writings as they were taught to Timothy. Uh, verse 14 I'm very excited. They got me really fat markers. Um, hopefully you can see better. This is, a, this is a cool thing. So we see in verse 14 that by studying the sacred writings that our faith is able to become firmly established. Okay? Firmly established. That's what verse 14 tells us. Uh, verse 15 tells us that we will be wise to salvation. And then the third thing that we learn from this section um, is really, if you back up to verse 13, probably should have listed that one first, but verse 13, basically, we would be able to spot an imposter. Okay? So, you know, we're, we're doing this whole big series on how to study, how to understand the Bible, and we talked a lot about why we do that. Why is it important for us to really not just read this book, but understand this book? And the context of the most famous passage about, you know, this being God's Word tells us these are three big things of what the benefit for us is doing this is. Our faith does become fir firmly established. We are, we are rooted stronger. Our foundation is deeper and bigger because it's built on the truth of God's word. We'll be wise to salvation. This whole book, we've told you from week one of this, this whole book is about Jesus. Everything points to Jesus, points back to Jesus. So it leads us being wise to salvation. And this huge one, which hits us every day, that we can spot an imposter. When we hear someone, whether they're on the TV or whether they're on the street corner or whether we're reading a book or a blog or whatever, if we are in this book and we're able to read and understand and interpret and apply this book as God wants us to, 
We'll know when someone's trying to pull the wool over our eyes and trying to build their own selves up or whatever they're doing. Okay? So, um, when we, just moving forward, uh, I just do want to emphasize again that, you know, Paul was writing this in context that these sacred scriptures um, really, at this point in history, when he writes this, is talking about the Old Testament. Uh, we, have the, we, have the, we have the benefit of the full counsel of God's word, um, but this is really, I think, just really underlines the importance of last week and this week in particular. So, okay, sound good? Great. So, with that in mind, let's just jump in tonight. Okay? So, what we're going to do tonight is really talk about um, the various literary styles that we find in the Old Testament. Just as it's vastly important that we understand the historical context of when we read the Bible, it's also vastly important that we understand the type of writing that's going on, because that helps us in our understanding, our interpretation, and our application. Okay? So the first one we're going to talk about is the law. Now, I know we touched on this last week. We're going to revisit some things, um, but let's talk about the law. Okay? There's a, there's, as far as our first literary style. So the first thing we need to understand is that there are two contexts going on with the law. There's a narrative context the story, and there's a covenantal context. I'll talk about that in a second. Meaning, though, it's this. Meaning that the law's been given during a specific time in history to a specific people for a specific purpose. This is why we spent so much time last week talking about eras. Now, the narrative part is this. The narrative is that the chosen family of God, right through the line of Abraham, the Hebrews, they had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. 400 years they've been enslaved. We get to the end of Genesis, of Genesis, and, you know, we have Joseph brings his whole family, right? They're escaping that famine. And by the time we get into the first few verses of Exodus, the very next book, 400 years have gone by, okay? A long period of time has gone by. They've been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. Their faith and their life is patterned after the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How they believed, how they lived, how they understood, how they related to God, that has been passed down to them that way. Plus, you need to understand, they were being oppressed. They were enslaved, right? They were being oppressed in a polytheistic culture. They're living in Egypt, which has a God for everything, the God of the river, the God of the sun, the God of the sand, the God of the whatever. So then this polytheistic culture that had no rule of faith. Okay, and with a lot of these other religions that have many gods, there's no, a lot of times there's no rules of what you do to actually make these gods happy, so to speak. So they just try stuff. Do you guys remember the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal? And they're just kind of trying everything to get their God's attention. And none of it worked, right? They, they really didn't know. So that's the environment that the Hebrews, the Israelites, were living in. So when God delivered them through Moses and then gave them the law to show them exactly what it means to worship him and how they are to live as his people who are set apart, which means what? What's one word for being set apart, you know? Holy. How to be a holy people. How to be a different people. How to be a set-apart people that's going to look very, very different to the culture around them. They received that law with gladness because now all the guesswork is removed. And they knew what God required. For the Hebrews, at this point of history, when they received the law from Moses, it was a joyful thing for them. We look at the law, and, you know, we get, you know, we, like we joke all the time, right? We get lost in Leviticus, right? And we're reading Numbers, and we're like, oh my gosh, can this be over soon? Please, you know? But this is a joyful thing for them. It was a joyful thing for them because the one true God, their God, is saying this is what it means to live and worship, for me, worship me 
in this day and age. Okay? Now, there's many aspects. That's kind of the narrative part. There's many aspects of the law that are based on an old covenant, or you might hear the term the Mosaic covenant, named after Moses, um, that was clearly conditional. Clearly conditional. Let me define covenant for you real, real quickly. A covenant is very similar to a contract. Okay, there's typically agreements on both parties. You know, you're going to do this, I'm going to do this. This is the covenant we made together. With a covenant, it is, it is typically, though, an, a, an agreement that is ordained by God himself. So we, you know, if you hear the Abrahamic covenant, uh, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with David, um, we'll be talking about the new covenant with Jesus. When we talk about marriage as a covenant, these are things instituted, ordained by God. Okay? So we have this Mosaic covenant that was clearly conditional. Do these things, and it's going to be great. Don't do them, and it's not going to be so great for you. Okay? We see this in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. It says this. It says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people, for all the earth is mine. Right? So there, you, to be able to reap those benefits, you have to obey and keep the covenant. If you don't do that, there's going to be all kinds of consequences, which is a lot of what the prophets talked about and dealt with. Which We're going to get to that in a minute. Um, Deuteronomy, the last book of the Torah, the five books of law that Moses wrote, Deuteronomy literally means the second law, meaning the repeating of the, wall, of the law. It's not a different law. It's just being stated again. Spells this out very clearly in chapter 28. Okay, Deuteronomy 28. The, the first 14 verses list out all the blessings of Israel for following the covenants. So the first 14 verses, Deuteronomy 28, you do all these things and you will be blessed in all these ways. The rest of the chapter... 15 through 68, lists out the curses if they don't keep the covenant. So we have to understand when we're talking about law, there is a narrative context and a covenantal context. Okay? You guys following me? Great. Now, let's get to some cool news with this. Because of our inability to keep the covenant, you know, we have this sin condition, Right? Um, we cannot keep God's law perfectly. No one ever has except for one guy. Because of our inability to keep the covenant and because of God's great love for us, he sent Jesus to establish a new covenant. We're going to get into this probably in a couple weeks. Uh, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Okay? So, one thing that's really important as we read um, as we read the Old Testament law in particular, what we really need to make sure we do is that we read through it say, say we're examining it, let's pretend this is a you know, a magnifying glass. We need to make sure that when we read the Old Testament law, that we're reading through it with a very strong gospel lens. That we see how Jesus fulfilled the law. So we, this is, I know Pastor talked on this last week. Um, I listened to his message today. And um, he, he, you know, there's a lot of things that were fulfilled. There are a lot of things that are expired and obsolete. Um, we look at what Jesus said in Matthew 5.17. He said in Matthew 5.17 that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. To fulfill them. He didn't say that he came necessarily to observe them. He didn't say that he came to abolish them. But he did say that he came to complete them. To fulfill them. Okay, now, um, we touched on th these three. There's, and there's some categories of law that we need to understand. I want to revisit these for just a moment. 
I know Pastor took a lot of time with this last week, which is really good. So, and there was a question about um, this too, which I want to remind you. On the screen, there is a phone number. If you have a question at any time about anything that's being covered, you can text your question to that number, and we will revisit your question in the next you know, week or so uh, to help understand that. So, just to remind you, there's three types of law. The civil law is the first one. Uh, primarily deals with the relationship and disputes between people in the context of a theocracy. What's a theocracy? A, th- a theocracy is a form of government where God's the king. Okay, God's in charge directly. When the Jewish civil government expired, these laws became obsolete. There are some principles that are driving them that are still true. I mean, Paul writes in the New Testament that says, you know, loving your neighbor is the fulfillment of the law. I mean, we, you know, it gets really boiled down. So there's civil law, there's ceremonial law, deals with formal worship of God under a sacrificial system, which that expired with the fulfillment of the priestly work of Jesus. This is why it's such a big deal that the temple curtain was torn in two when Jesus died. The ceremonial law, the sacrificial system is done. It's over. And then there's the moral law. Moral law and civil law at times overlap, but moral law has more to do with timeless truths based on the character of God, which doesn't change. God doesn't change, the Bible says. Um, This is where, like, the the Ten Commandments do fit in, okay? Um, So there was a question someone asked last week regarding Sabbath, regarding Sabbath, okay? Um, One thing that we have to be very careful of is we always have to be on guard against legalism, right? We always have to be on guard against that. You know, and, and Jesus, if tell you what, if it's one, if, it, if it's one Old Testament law that he got pegged on all the time by the Pharisees, it was the Sabbath. He was always doing stuff on the Sabbath that made the Pharisees mad, right? They're walking and plucking grain to eat the grain. They got in trouble for that. He healed some. Oh, they got in trouble for that, right? So let me just say this about the Sabbath. You know, the Sabbath, there, there's, there's three things, okay? Three things. One, Jesus freed us from a lot of things. When we talk about the Sabbath in particular, and, and its whole idea of resting, you know, that's the, that's the main idea of Sabbath is resting, right? What we need to understand is that through Christ alone, the inner strivings that we have to succeed, to, um, to find worth, that we often find in our work, the things that we do, um, what we find, Jesus fulfills that. This is why Hebrews chapter 4 and chapter 5 talk about Jesus being our Sabbath rest. You're only going to find that settlement of your soul in Christ alone. He is the rest that you're really looking for. So when we talk about Sabbath, that when we, and we do it with a strong gospel lens, that's what really we're at now. Now, is it a, is it a good rhythm? Well, sure, it's a good rhythm. You know, one reason we, we have the law is, is because, especially I think with Sabbath, um, we, we're bad with boundaries, I mean, human beings are kind of bad with boundaries. You know, with work, we have a tendency to either underwork and be lazy or overwork, right, and be like addicted to work kind of thing. We, we co- as people in general, we go to extremes. So God provides us these boundaries. So the things that you have to work out with Sabbath is that it's primarily about the finished work of Christ and finding your rest in him. You know, you have the freedom to work and to serve every day of the week. You, you have that freedom. But we also need to be good stewards of our time and our energy so we find the right balance of work, of family, of health, of rest, in a way that's going to honor the Lord. Okay? So uh, that's really when we think of Sabbath these days. That is, I think, a proper perspective of Sabbath looking at it through Christ. Amen? All right. Um, the last thing I'm going to say about the law, it was another question. 
that was texted in about these three types of law, civil, ceremonial, and moral. The Bible doesn't categorize them necessarily that way. There's no verse that says, and here's the three types of law. Um, They have been developed over time in both Jewish and Christian history alike. So it's kind of one of those historical understandings of how it generally breaks down to answer that question as well. Um, In Romans 7, there there is something I do want to touch on before we move on to the next one. Romans 7 is one of those chapters you read that can kind of make you do like gymnastics in your brain, right? Um, but Paul makes a really strong point here. And I, and, and, I, and I want to emphasize, you know, we're spending a lot of time talking about the Old Testament because um, it's really easy for us as Christians to not give it the importance and the, res- and the honor that it, that it deserves. It's still God's word. You know, Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 12 says this, what then shall we say that the law is sin by no means? Yet if I had not, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. And Paul goes on to expand this. In verse 12, he says, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. You see, Paul is saying that the law is a good thing because we understand exactly what sin is because of it. And that's a gift. Then he goes on, the end of that chapter, 21 through 25, says, So I find it to be a law. When I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I mean, we all feel that, don't we? We want to do the right thing, but there is a battle going on. For I delight in the law of God. Do we all delight in the law of God? We delight in God's word that he's given us? You all should be raising your hand right now. Okay, good. <laughs> but I see in my members another law waging war. Okay, this, you know, the, the, the sin that we're still fighting. Waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to, captive to the law of sin that dwells on my members. Now check this out. Wretched man that I am. Paul hates this battle that he's in. He hates that he loses a lot. He loses, you know, the battle to sin more than his desire sometimes. That's the, he, what he talks a lot about in this. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see, on one hand, we have the law that's good and holy because it's showing us what sin is. And on the other hand, we see this law driving us to our need of a Savior. And it's pointing us, driving us right to Jesus. This is why we say Everything in this part of the Bible is pointing to the cross. This is how God's setting it up. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So, um, there you go. There's our section on law. Let's move on to the next one. We have a lot to cover in the next little bit. So, the law. The next one is really a a historical literary style. This is sprinkled all throughout Scripture in a lot of ways. A lot we find in the Torah as well. Now, when we talk about a historical literary style, what it's doing is simply recording events. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about things that are descriptive and things that are prescriptive, right? Sometimes the Bible just describes what happened, and oftentimes it's telling us things that we should do or not do. Just because it's recorded in the Bible as part of God's Word doesn't mean that we should curse God and die like Job's wife said in Job chapter 2, verse 9. Well, it's in the Bible. Okay, that's a really wrong interpretation using that verse that way. Just because it's described doesn't mean that's what we do. Another example is when you think about the prophet Elisha. Okay, he, was the, he followed up Elijah. Okay, Elijah got taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. Elisha was his um, next guy that followed him. And there was this commander of a foreign army named Naaman. Ever heard this story before of Naaman? Okay, what, what did Naaman suffer from? What disease did he have? 
He had leprosy. So um, he goes to Elisha, and he heard about this, you know, this little servant girl, actually, that was taken, you know, this Israelite servant girl that was taken in captivity, told him about Elisha um, back, you know, um, in, you know, back over in the land of Canaan, Israel kind of area, and said, hey, there's this guy that can heal you. And so Naaman makes this big march back uh, to find Elisha and wants to pay him, right? He wants to pay him to heal him. And Elisha says, no, don't do that. I want you to go wash in that river over there, the stinky, smelly Jordan River right there. And um, Naaman, after arguing a little bit, finally did that, and it, and it cleansed him from his leprosy, right? Now, that doesn't mean every leper or every skin ailment is going to be healed by going washing in the Jordan River. It, it's describing a miraculous time that happened. So we, read all, we have to read a lot of this with just this idea of, is, is this describing or is it prescribing? We keep in mind the history and cultural development in mind as well of people. Now you've got to think about a lot of the Old Testament is written, you know, a few thousand years ago. A lot's changed in a few thousand years, right? So, um, I mean, let me, you know, let's do, let's do another picture tonight. So, you guys remember Joshua, right? Joshua, uh, let's, let's just say, you know, Joshua and the Israelites are kind of over here. And they're on this battlefield. And the Edomites are over here, right? And they're having a war, right? They're shooting arrows, you know, they're, they're having sword fights, all that kind of thing. And they needed to prevail, and Joshua prayed. Joshua prayed that the sun, you know, and the moon would stand still so they could win the, win the battle that day. And it says that the sun and the moon stood still. This is found in Joshua chapter 10, specifically in verses 12 and 13. Now, people will look at this story and they'll criticize the Bible. They'll say, well, pfft, we know the sun and the moon doesn't revolve around the earth. They don't stand still. The earth wouldn't need to stand still. Right? They make, they make that argument. Well, okay, listen. One, we can go back to the whole description thing. And we can also say, for a guy three-ish thousand years ago, that was, that, was, that was a perspective. That was the perception of how nature worked. It doesn't make God's word any less true. And besides, making that argument is not the point of the story. That is someone that doesn't understand the Old Testament, doesn't know how to read the Bible. Okay? So we take into uh, consideration historical and cultural development when we read. Uh, what we do need to remember regarding historical accounts is that God is always the central character. He's always a central character. This is his book. This is not our book. We are not the main character of the story or any of the stories in it. God is always the central character. And if the choices of the people in the narrative don't line up with God's character and God's law, there were bad consequences. Like David's sin with Bathsheba. Like Solomon's multiple upon multiple upon multiple wives. Never goes well. Okay? So, historical is another literary uh, type that we find in the Old Testament. Another one is poetry. We see lots of poetry in the Old Testament, uh, particularly in Psalms and Song of Solomon, but also sprinkled through other books and genres. Genesis chapter 1 is oftentimes described as the song of creation because there is a rhythm of Hebrew poetry in Genesis chapter 1, as it describes how God created everything. Now, the main purpose of poetry, particularly in like, let's just pick on the Psalms, the main purpose of poetry is not to teach doctrine or moral behavior, although they can and do assist in that. Their primary purpose of biblical poetry is to give us models and language for us to sing and pray to God. That's a big purpose of biblical poetry. And we see 
um, biblical poetry taking on a few forms. The first thing we could see about biblical poetry is this idea of terseness. Terseness. Terseness means they're very brief statements. They're not long narratives. You know, and you can kind of think, you know, what, what David would write in one verse, Paul would write a whole chapter on to explain it, right? Um, Psalm 54, verse 4, Behold, God is my helper, and the Lord is the upholder of my life. A very short statement that's a truism about, about God that gives us language to pray and to sing to him. So terseness is a, is a form of, uh, we find that in Hebrew poetry. The another one is how Hebrew poetry is typically structured, how it's structured. It's lines of verse instead of sentences and paragraphs. If you have a Bible, just open up to the Psalms anywhere. And I don't care if it's a book Bible or if it's on your app or whatever. Look at, this, look at the Psalms. Now, when you look at it, they are not arranged on the page like Malachi, the Italian prophet. That's all the laugh I got of that? Oh, come on. Um, but, but you see, I mean, this is very much sentence in paragraph form, right? This is structured very differently because the way Hebrew poetry is grouped is typically um, through parallelism. There's typically four lines perverse. Two state one thought, two state the next thought. We see this over and over again. Psalm chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. O oh Lord, how many are my foes? Second line. Many are rising against me. Third line. Many are saying of my soul. Fourth line. There is no salvation for him in God. Selah. So the structure is different. Then it also uses much figurative imagery. This is Hebrew poetry's main medium is figurative imagery. What it's doing, it's painting pictures versus writing essays. It's painting pictures versus writing essays. Listen to Exodus chapter 15. Whoa, I thought we were talking about poetry. Yeah, Exodus chapter 15 is the song of Moses. Moses sang a psalm. He was the original psalm writer. Exodus chapter 15, verse 6 and then verse 8. Listen, it says, Your right hand, O Lord, Glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Verse 8, at the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the flood stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. Here's a question for you. Does God actually have a right hand? Does God actually have nostrils? No, he doesn't, because God the Father is spirit is what the Bible teaches. Jesus does, but, God, but the, the, the point isn't that God actually has a right hand or nostrils that he's breathing out of. It's figurative imagery. It's painting a picture for us of what God has done. Okay, so we need to keep that in mind as well. Let's talk about types of psalms, because there's a lot of psalms. We have six main types of psalms. The first one is hymns is hymns. And these are psalms of praise. And I have Michael W. Smith going through my head from Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Boom, boom. Right? So there's psalms of praise. Um, there's also psalms of lament. Psalms of lament. These are psalms of complaint or psalms of sadness. Psalm 3. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Do you see, even in just these first two types of psalms, how these psalms help give us language to pray to God and come to him with where we're at? And in his graciousness and in his love, he meets us there. The third type of psalm, royal psalms. Psalms to honor the king of Israel. Okay? Psalm 18, great salvation he brings to his king, God brings to his king, and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Really woven into a lot of these psalms is this idea of royalty. And, in, and on one hand, it honors the king like David the king, but what it always does is point to the great king overall of God the king. Okay? That's how we need to understand the royal psalms. 
The fourth type of psalm is thanksgiving. Psalms giving thanks to God either from individuals or from a community. Psalm 100. Enter, I have another song going through my head. It's like a happy clappy song. I will enter his gates with thanksgiving. You guys know that one? Yeah. So enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. Just pouring out thanks to God. Uh, the fifth type of psalm is wisdom psalms. Psalms acknowledging the source of and practice of, of wisdom. Psalm 1 is a one of these. Blessed is the man who walks not in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, and it goes on and talks about wisdom. And then the last type of psalm, actually more of a section of psalms, called the Psalms of Ascent. Ascent. These were psalms that were specifically sung by the people when they made pilgrimages back to Jerusalem. Psalm 120 all the way through 134 is the grouping of psalms of ascent. Ascent means what? To go up. Now, it doesn't matter if you were coming down from the mountains to Jerusalem or wherever, you always went up to Jerusalem because it was God's holy city. You were going to the temple where God's presence was over the ark and the holy of holies. So that's why they're called the Psalms of Ascent because you're always going up to, Jeru to Jerusalem. And there's various types of, of within them of hymns and royal and thanksgiving and all that sort of thing. So those are our types of psalms of poetic literary forms that we find in the Old Testament. The next one that we find, um, the next literary form that we find is wisdom. Is wisdom. Wisdom literature focuses on existential questions. Existential questions about God, about humanity, the nature of evil, about suffering. They're found in two main ways. The first way that they're found is in true, these short truisms that we see in Proverbs. Proverbs is just this whole book of these short truisms. Or we do find some in dialogue, like the book of Job or Ecclesiastes, a narrative. Um, and what we really find out, especially in the narrative ones, in the dialogue ones, what, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's the wisdom. It's, it's being worked out. How many of you um, are married, let's just say, to a, a verbal processor? They talk everything out out loud. Or maybe you are a verbal processor, okay? Yeah, and so um, I'm married to one, and I'm not a verbal processor, so God is teaching me patience over these last 21 years. I love my wife very much. And she'll start talking something out way over here and go over here and finally get over here, okay? And that's great, and that's good. She's, that's just how she works it out. That's how a lot of you just work it out. In a lot of ways, that's how, and we read these dialogues and narratives, a lot of that is getting worked out that way. So we read Ecclesiastes, and we're reading like, what in the world was Solomon doing, doing all this stuff? But then we get to the last chapter of Ecclesiastes, and he kind of sums it up, and he sums it all up, right, about the Lord. So one thing that happens in um, the wisdom literature is that they use extreme comparative language. Extreme comparative language whether they're comparing the righteous and the wicked, whether they're comparing the wise and the fool, whether they're comparing the diligent and the sluggard, or whether they're comparing God and man. So, uh, you know, that is one thing we see often in wisdom literature is these examples. Now, I'm going to read to you um, regarding this two of my favorite proverbs ever. Okay? I love these proverbs. You ready? They're really good. Proverbs 11.22. This is a great proverb. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. It's a great proverb. Or there's another one. Proverbs 26.11. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. I mean, these are great proverbs, right? There's something for everybody in these things. But you see, you know, when you use hyperbole, when you use this extreme language, it just drives the point home even more, doesn't it? That's, that's what they're doing. So when we read Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, many of the Psalms, we find this wisdom literature, that is uh, the, the rhythms that we, that we find in there. Um, the, la the last section of literary forms in the Old Testament that we're going to talk about is prophetical. Prophetical. Now, prophets... 
were men, were people, who were speaking to the people for God. Speaking to the people for God. And they say this phrase a lot in the parentheses on the screen. Everyone say it together. Thus says the Lord. And then they lay it on them. Right? Most often, these prophets were speaking to the nations of Israel or Judah because they were sinning. That's what they were doing. Now, I, I, I came across this, um, this quote um, from a book called How to Read the Bible. It's actually quoted within a book called The, called, um, um, the Interpretive Journey, I believe it was called, or Journey, Journey to God's Word, I'm sorry. Journey to God's Word is another one of the source materials we're using for this series. They quote uh, this other book, How to Read the Bible. So I haven't dug into these um, percentages to see really how on, like, straight up they are, but I think they're pretty, pretty good. But listen to this quote. This will really change your perspective a little bit. Less than 2% talking about prophetical writings. You know, Isaiah, Malachi, the Italian prophet, you know, those guys, Hosea. Less than 2% is messianic, directly messianic. Less than 5% specifically describes the new covenant age. Less than 1% concerns events yet to come in our time. What does this tell us? Even if these percentages aren't that low, it still gives a pretty healthy percentage of what they were saying. So what this is telling us is that these prophets were speaking to the people at that time for what they should be and should not be doing. Okay? Um, They are typified by short narrative sections and symbolic acts. Think about the prophet who sits in ashes, right? Think about Hosea, who God told to go marry a prostitute, these symbolic acts. They're also a collection of anthologies. Um, They're a collection of shorter units given to God by the prophet over time. It's not like Isaiah sat down one day and wrote, you know, 50-some chapters of Isaiah, right? No, these happened over his whole career as a prophet that were collected, that were given to people written down. Here's the typical prophetical message. Here's the typical prophetical message. First one is this. The prophet says to the people, you have broken the covenant. Remember we talk about the covenant? You have broken the covenant, so repent. That's the first part of the prophetical message. How have they broken the covenant? Typically, they've broken it one of three ways or some combination. They have broken it by idolatry is is the primary way they break the covenant. They They have traded worship of the one true God for something else, for something else. Ezekiel chapter 14 gives us a clue into this when Ezekiel talks to the elders of Israel. And he actually does a really great thing here because he helps redefine idolatry a little bit. It's not just maybe, you know, the the Asherah pole or whatever that was going on in the land or money or things like that. Listen to what what, um, Ezekiel says here. It says, And the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel 14. Verse 2, and then verse 3. Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. And he goes on to talk about these idols, but he's saying, listen, the main place we find idols is in our hearts. And it becomes manifested on something else. Because the whole idea with idolatry is not so much a statue or a thing, it's really what you're worshiping and what you're finding your worth from. It's an idol of the heart. So they break the covenant by their idolatry in some form. They break the covenant um, by social injustice. They have neglected caring for the poor and needy, which God is very clear on. That's one, re- that's one way my people are going to be set apart because they're going to care for the poor and needy, the sojourner, the widow, the orphan. They've also broken it by ritualism. By ritualism. Uh, The famous verse in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, that Jesus quoted many times. 
where Jesus says to the Pharisees, you need to go understand what this means when God said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Well, we're doing all these right things. Your heart is far from me. Ritualism does not replace a relationship with me and being and living as my beloved child. So the first part of this prophetical message is that you've broken the covenant, so you need to repent. The second part of the prophetical message is, well, since you won't repent, judgment is coming. And typically, judgment came in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel or Judah that other nations invaded them and ruled over them. That was a huge judgment because really, what, where was Moses trying to lead them to? Where did Joshua take them to? The what? The promised land. So getting that land taken away from them where they can't rule themselves there, that's a huge judgment. The loss of the promised land. But the third part of the prophetical message is great because God is a good and loving God. It says there is hope beyond the judgment for a future restoration. This is where God says, you know what, you can return to me. Repent, return to me. He gives us messianic promises. A Savior is coming. He says there's going to be a time. I, man, I, I love reading Ezekiel. I love reading Jeremiah. Yeah, because we, these books talk about that in the future, that God says, I am going to write my law on your hearts. He's alluding to the new covenants found in Christ, where this is about the heart, not about the system that we're in. So he always gives hope. And I will say this about, the last thing I'll say about prophetical writings as we wrap up, is when you read the prophetical writings, let's say of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, you know, they are written to the people who are exiled, who find themselves in the middle of godless cultures. You know, it seems to me that the way things are going in our world, in our culture, we're finding a lot more in common with them than maybe ever before. And we can find some patterns for living. You know, and the beautiful thing is that we see it through the lens of Christ, right? And, you know, we have this messianic hope. It's a real. we have a messianic reality, right? And so, um, but we really, when we, when we read Jeremiah 29, in particular, you know, we love 29.11, right? For I know the the plans that give you hope in a future. But when you read that context of what's going on, he's telling them how to thrive in the midst of a godless culture. You see, this is when we understand the historical era, when we understand the, the literary style being used, God's word becomes very alive and much more easy for us to apply today so it really is a living and active word that pierces through the bone to the marrow. So in conclusion, let me just say this. Um, we, knew, we do need to, we all understand that the Old Testament is a major part of God's story. It was the scriptures that the early church fathers had that showed them their sin and their need of a Savior and pointed them to Jesus. Now, there, there's, let, let me give you one last final list. And I'll, I'll tell you, we've given you lots of lists. We've given you lots of questions. Oh, here's four great questions to ask here and to ask there when you're reading the Bible. Um, and we're, we are going to kind of pick the best of the best to really give you a tool at the end of the series uh, to help you with that. But here are five questions. When we really read the Old Testament in an interpretation, these are some great things to ask. You need to ask the origin question. You need to ask the origin question. What did the text mean to the biblical audience? What did it mean to them? Okay, who was the audience? When was it written? What was the situation? We have to ask that question first. Then we have to ask this question of the culture gap. You know, what's the difference between the biblical audience and us? How much time has passed? Thousands of years? Hundreds? Well, all thousands of years at this point. But how much time has passed? How are the worldviews different? Like I mentioned earlier, you know, the, the, the Israelites that were enslaved in Egypt had a worldview of this, you know, I mean, they, they were God's chosen people. They were following the pattern of the patriarchs, but they were in the midst of this godless culture, this polytheistic culture. And so because of those situations, when the law was given, they saw it as a joy, not as a burden, right? So what's the culture gaps? How are worldviews different? Timeless truth is the next question. 
What's the theological principle being communicated? Really, what is it saying about God and about God's work? Not what I think it's saying about me. What's it saying about him? It's his story. So what's the timeless truth going on here? Once we answer those first three questions, we can get to this question, to the gospel question. How does the New Testament either modify or qualify the principle? We had a great example of that tonight when we talked about the Sabbath, right? When we look at that through a gospel lens and apply Jesus on top of that, Jesus' life, Jesus' teaching, and the rest of our New Testament, we have a very different understanding of Sabbath than, than, than before, right? And a much more point of freedom to live from with it, actually. So how does the New Testament modify or qualify? How does Jesus affect the principle? Is it fulfilled? Does it go deeper? Is it a heart issue? You know, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus talks about all kinds of laws, but he talks about them as heart issues. You know, is this a transcend? How is this truth transcendent? And then the last question to ask is the action question. How do I apply this principle to my life today? What is the appropriate response from me after I read this word? Is the appropriate response worship? God, you are great. You are holy, holy, holy. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for being my Savior. Thank you for giving me hope. Right? I worship you for who you are. Is worship the response? Is illumination the response? You have an understanding. You, can, you are better able to worship God with your mind now and communicate his truth to somebody, out, to somebody else. Is the appropriate response repentance? Is there, you, read, you read God's law and you're like, I'm not doing that. And I should be doing that. Lord, help me to turn. Help me to think differently. Help me to live differently for your glory and not my glory. Or is it action? Is it action? Should I do something now? Is there a ministry for me to get plugged into? Is there someone for me to serve? How do I love my neighbor? Right? So, or is it a combination of all those things? So you have these all in your notes. Um, you know, I please encourage you guys to read those. But I really pray for you that after um, these last couple weeks in particular, that as you open the Old Testament now, that you're able to open it with some wider eyes and some deeper love and really being able to see Christ clearly through it and see the great story of God and how he wants to connect to us on a heart level, on, um, on the level of our minds, for us to live more for him, for his glory, not our own. Amen? Let's pray together. Father God, thank you so much for such a great opportunity to come and open your word, to learn about your words, that we can be more equipped for every good work. Lord, I pray as we read your Bible that we give the full counsel of your word, the honor that it's due, the respect that it's due. Lord, that we would learn more about you, that we would live to worship you, that we would be um, greater followers of you and really make a, making a difference in this world who so desperately needs you. Your word is our standard. Help us to be firmly rooted in our faith. Lead us to salvation. Lord, help us to be able to spot the imposters as well and help us to be able to speak up for the truth of who you are as revealed in your word over thousands of years, which is amazing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Love you, everybody. Thanks. See you next week. We start the New Testament.